Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This past Thursday, we had another Blister Speaker Series event at Western Colorado University, and our guest was Mark Abma. Now, I had connected with Mark about four or five years ago for a Blister podcast conversation, and it was a really good conversation, and he and I had talked about doing a follow-up to that conversation, well, for the last four or five years. And we finally made it happen this past week. And in addition to this conversation you're about to hear, Mark and I got to have a number of really good conversations, ranging from this past Wednesday and then Thursday and then riding bikes together on Friday. And in addition to being a skier who has been doing it at a high level for a very long time now, I can also say that Mark is a very generous person and someone who is really thinking, trying to get beneath the surface of pretty much everything. And another thing that seems clear is just how universally loved and respected Abma is among his peers, and I completely get it. Now, Thursday night at Western, what we did was pretty fun. We opened by showing Mark's segment from the Matchstick Productions film, All In, and then we got to break that down with Mark. And then, just this past Saturday night, Mark was also in town for the premiere of Matchstick Productions' latest film, Land of Giants, and very impressively, this is Mark's 20th MSP film. So we also talk a bit about Land of Giants and some of Mark's anecdotes and thought on filming for that this past season, but we then take the opportunity to talk a bit about the evolution of big mountain skiing, with a person who was right in the center of that evolution. And appropriately, given the time of year, we talked to Mark about how he prepares for an upcoming ski season, and there are some great notes there, both on the physical training side and some notes on the sort of mental game of it all. We also talk about just a few of the things that Mark's thinking about outside of skiing, and then, as is our custom, we turned it over to the audience and they asked their questions for Mark. So that's what we have on tap for you here, a terrific conversation with a wonderful person. And either before you listen to this podcast or once you do listen to it, you should also watch Mark's segment in the MSP film All In, we will include a link to that segment in the show notes of this episode. It's just about five minutes long, and you will enjoy watching it in advance of this conversation or going back to check it out with Mark's thoughts about it all fresh in your mind. And with that, let's get to our Blister Speaker Series event this past Thursday in Gunnison, Colorado at Western Colorado University with Mark Abma. Here we go. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University. Um, happy to have you all here. Very much looking forward to this conversation this evening with Mark Abma, who I think we should ask to come out right now. So, Mark. <laughs> Hello, hello. Thanks for coming out tonight. Ah, it's amazing to be here. You guys are very lucky, as I've learned. You guys have the opportunity to go skiing. Is there a shuttle leaving every half an hour to take you up to Crested Butte? I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that. A little bit of school, a little bit of skiing. It's a good life. I have to say, for somebody who basically splits time between Whistler and Pemberton, there's been a whole lot of like, man, this valley is incredible coming out of you. And I, I haven't spent that much time 
between Whistler and Pemberton, but I was it, it was I was a little surprised because I was like, it seems like you guys have it pretty good in your neck of the woods. We do have it really, really good where we live. Yeah, it's pretty unique because down just south of Whistler, we've got the ocean that comes in. So we've got access to the ocean, the mountains, and everything in between. Um, but when I come here, especially this time of year, I mean, it's about as beautiful as it gets, really. It's with all the colors popping, the bike trails are in amazing shape. And, um, and Crested Butte is just such an amazing town. Kind of, to a certain extent, it does feel like I'm coming home, so it's nice. I've been coming here for so many years now. We're going to talk about that too. Um, but where I want to start, we just watched your segment from All In. And I just wanted to ask you, how does that feel looking back on a segment you know, that you filmed for several years ago? Um, how does that feel? Watching it, do you immediately start watching with like a critical eye and you're like, oh, that landing could have been slightly different? Or do you have a kind of softer, gentler approach where it's a more reminiscing about the days in the mountains. Yeah, I definitely, I do have a critical eye. So there's definitely a couple of shots where like, oh, I should have held the grab a little bit longer or could have landed that a little bit better. But um, I think where it really brought me back to was just how much work went into behind the scenes. Just getting the geodesic dome set up was quite a project. Um, that snowcat wasn't operational earlier in the year. So anytime I had a break in weather, um, I actually had a, a bit of a nagging knee injury that year. And so anytime my knee was getting too sore, then I would drive five hours to go work in the snowcat. And I was sleeping on my buddy's floor and then working in the shop 16 hours a day to get that old. Because it's a 1969 Tucker snowcat that hadn't been running in 20 to 25 years. And so there was a lot of work that had to go into it. And... Um, so yeah, it just reminds me of how much work goes into that little five-minute segment. Um, but in the end, you know, it made for a very memorable year. And uh, yeah, and the snowcat was, uh, it was definitely an adventure to drive because it's, it's an older machine and um, it can totally break down in the middle of nowhere. And if that were to happen, then I would be, uh, yeah, I'd be stuck waiting for spring, basically, to tow that thing out of there. So it was, uh, it was a good adventure. And it, it made the trip. So, For me, watching that segment again, um, one of the things I really started thinking about was, you know, you're, you're spinning off a lot of those natural features. And I was just thinking about the fact that, um, you know, we see that all the time now. But I was like, man, it seems like ABMA was among the first that really started approaching lines, natural features with that mindset. And I was like, well, that's fitting. I have him right here. Let's ask a little bit um, about sort of that evolution of big mountain skiing and how you look back at sort of look back at that evolution and being a part of that. Yeah, I was pretty lucky just in the way that I had the opportunity to ski with uh, C.R. Johnson. I'm not sure if you remember him from back in the day. Um, but he was one of the first people that I saw starting to throw tricks off of natural features along with Tanner Hall. And so I think I kind of got inspiration from them. And... I do remember when I first tried, started trying 360s off of natural features, especially in deeper snow, and it was just, my tails were getting caught up, and I was just kind of flailing, and it was kind of awkward, and then eventually clicked for me that, oh, in deep snow, you need to have a good amount of speed on that takeoff so that you're floating and you're not trenching in that takeoff. And then as soon as I figured that out, then all of a sudden, I kind of created a motto in my head where the 360 was the new straight air because I was just straight airing off a cliff for the longest time then eventually started wrapping my head around that and then all of a sudden I was like, well, I could do a three off that, I could do a three off that and then, and then it started progressing to trying Misty 7s and Rodeo 7s off of other natural features and some features just lend themselves better to certain tricks than others 
And so I always just tried to find the feature that would work well for spinning right or spinning left. Or um, if it was a takeoff that was a little bit more downhill, then I found doing a Misty 7 would work better. But if it had a bit of a lip to it, then a Rodeo 7 would work well. And all that just came with you know, a little bit of trial and error and <laughs> lots of crashing. And how much collaboration or you know, comparing notes with other skiers was happening during that time? Or was it more like, nah, if you were out, you were kind of working on this on your own? I mean, at the end of the day, you're working on it on your own. Because when you're hitting a natural feature... <laughs> no one's hitting it with you. Yeah, exactly. And you can't really ask somebody how it went. Because we're always trying to ski lines and hit a natural feature with no tracks on it and try to do a trick off that. And so that was a bit... Like you're jumping into the unknown because, um, especially if we're using a helicopter that day, for example, you're looking at everything from afar. And so that cliff that you're going to be going off of, it's really hard to get um, a sense of scale as to how big that might be. So it looks like... It could be 20 feet, it might be 60 feet, or somewhere in between. And so it's really hard to know how much rotation to set because you don't really know how big it is. Because you can't just ski down and go to the edge of the cliff and be like, oh, okay, yeah, now I know how big it is. You're starting at the top of the mountain. And, um, but that's kind of what it made, made it all so rewarding. You know, you're using your best judgment and, and quite often you'd be communicating with a filmer who would be on the other side of the valley. Because not until, until somebody's on the mountain can you all of a sudden say or see and recognize how big the whole face is. And so sometimes I would get on top and the filmer would know what cliff I was thinking about. And he'd be like, no, 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 don't do that. That thing is way too big. And so there's always a lot of communication going back and forth. And with that, a lot of trust between myself and the ski guides and the filmers or a photographer. A lot of trust. <laughs> it seems like a lot of trust. And we watched that segment together and I asked you, you know, there's some fairly stout lines in that segment. And I said, how familiar were you with the lines that you were hitting that we just watched? And, you know, had you run through them, been on them? And I think you pretty much said the answer was just no. Yeah, I'd never skied on any of those lines, but we take as much time as possible just to scout it out, plan exactly where every turn is going to be, and look for distinct landmarks so you know exactly where to make those turns, where your takeoff is going to be, because quite often you get to the top of your line and it's just kind of a blind rollover. So then you're trying to find one land or landmark. So when you get to that point then you can start looking for the next landmark. And sometimes the train can really uh, be quite obvious, and then a lot of the times it's really challenging to know where to make those turns or, most importantly, where your exit area is going to be because that's, you know, when you're going off of a bigger cliff, that's always where the most risk is. Yeah. When I don't know what's happening down there, I, I just stop. But, I mean, that's where when we <laughs> – this is going to sound pretty funny, but, like, when I first started filming with Matchstick, people were still using Polaroids. Shane McConkie, for example, yeah. And then I remember, I think it was that season I had I'd gone to Japan and I bought this digital camera. <laughs> and it was pretty funny. I was cleaning up my, uh, my office a few years back and I found that old digital camera and the screen on it was like this big. <laughs> and uh, I was just kind of baffled at the fact that I was using that to scope my lines, particularly when I was in Bellacoola the first year, the first heli trip I'd ever been on. And, uh, and now we have it so good where we've got, you know, we've got our iPhones. So you've got like super high resolution and you can zoom into exactly every little feature and really, um, especially when you're at the top of the line, that's when you can start cross-referencing. You know, you can be like, oh, I think that tree is the tree that I'm looking at here. And um, especially when it's when you're trying to use trees as landmarks, they all kind of look the same, you know. And so that's where you're always like looking for a distinct anything subtly different from one tree to the next, so that you actually know where you're going. And that can be that's probably the biggest challenge. It's just kind of playing a game of connect the dots. This Saturday night, 
there is a premiere of the newest Matchstick Productions film, Land of Giants. You haven't watched the final cut yet. Explain. Um, I know some people really love watching their shots and love reviewing and edit. Um, you know, being that kind of come from a, a bit of a, an old school time where we were still shooting on film back then and you didn't really get a chance to review anything. And, um, and so I'd always put a lot of trust into MSP and I still do. So uh, I kind of, more often than not, if it's a personal segment, then I'll quite often I'll travel and help out with editing. But this is more of a, a travel-based film. And so I just kind of, yeah, once again, put some trust into them. And then when I do show up for the premiere, it's quite fun because now it's like I'm experiencing the same thing as everybody else. You know, I have really, I have no idea what this film's going to look like. And I, I love that element of surprise. So give us just a little teaser. What are a few tidbits or stories you're willing to share with us about filming this past season for this film? Yeah. Um, well, I guess my filming season started in Tahoe around mid-February. And I was there for three weeks. And I think during that time, we, we got 16 feet of snow or so. So it was pretty wild. Every morning was digging the vehicle out and... Um, and then just trying to make it to a spot because the roads weren't being plowed. And so we were pretty much the plow on, on the roads that morning and then just a lot of ski touring. But with that, we were doing just a lot of avalanche assessment. Like when you get that much snow, avalanches are a high risk. So we were definitely playing it safe and working in smaller terrain and working in feature terrain. And um, yeah, it was just great to experience Tahoe during... You know, arguably like one of the biggest storms of uh, their existence. Yeah. yeah. And what was really cool about it too, it was really cold during that particular storm. So it was, it was almost snowing down to sea level. So the snow quality there was not the typical Sierra cement they get. It was actually really good quality snow. Um, and then after that, I was back in Whistler and I filmed there for 10 days. And then after that, I got uh, a quick... Uh, invite to go to Norway and I met up with a, a guy named Nikolai Schirmer and we um, waited out what was a, a 100 year avalanche cycle which was slightly daunting <laughs> once again all the highways were closed and what was most notable that really raised a lot of red flags um, for us and the whole ski community there was there was a, an old farmhouse down on the ocean and it got hit by an avalanche. It got swept into the ocean with the people and their farm animals. And um, so the media was basically saying that, hey, anybody that's going skiing right now is reckless and basically don't do it. So uh, Nikolai, who's from Norway, he spoke in the news a lot. And he really took that opportunity to speak to people about snow safety and overall like avalanche awareness and how... Yes, there is a, a window of time when you definitely don't want to be in the mountains, but then there's also a time when the snow does start to stabilize and you can start entering back in the mountains safely. And so that's what we did. And um, we dug a lot of pits and we were definitely uh, ultra safe and we didn't have any complications. And, uh, and it's pretty wild there. Um, there's no ski resorts or anything. There's no heli skiing, so it's... Uh, basically driving along the fjords and kind of looking up, way up, <laughs> and, uh, and then parking the car and then putting on your, your skins and uh, walking uh, a long, long time. <laughs> and usually we just ski one run in a day. So it was uh, a lot of pressure just to yeah, ski one run, or a lot of effort to ski one run as well. And you were saying long walks and then... Big boot packs. Yeah, yeah, massive boot packs as well, um, which I, <laughs> I don't mind boot packing at all. But when you're on a sustained slope for a really long time, there's just there's more exposure. And uh, my whole thing with skiing is I usually try to get on and off a mountain as quick as possible 
just to eliminate the risk as much as possible. But you really don't have that option when you're boot packing. You know, like you can only hike so fast. And um, so, yeah, you just basically have to walk like from save point to save point and, uh, and trust uh, that the snowpack is going to hold in there. And, uh, and then when you get to the top of the ridge tops, that once again, I just wasn't as comfortable as the people from Norway with like running along these knife edge ridge tops. <laughs> and so these guys are like dancing along with their crampons and ice axes. And I'm just like gripped to the side of this mountain like a cat. you know. <laughs> and uh, so I definitely learned a lot from them just with um, how to walk around safely with crampons on rocks. And um, yeah, and they were just, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were good with me. They, uh, they definitely, they showed me the ropes and uh, yeah, we did some gnarly down climbs and but at the end of the day, it was, uh, it was an incredibly magical experience. We had some beautiful sunsets over the ocean, and the northern lights came out, and kind of all that you would hope uh, Norway to be. Yeah. And we went dog sledding, which was fun, too. So another notable thing about this new film, Land of Giants, this is your 20th matchstick film. Yeah. We got to talk about longevity. That's remarkable, right? And for those of you who have watched Mark's other segments, um, doing the stuff you're doing in the mountains, it's worth discussing. So what do you view as some of the reasons you've been able to enjoy this kind of longevity? I would say when I was younger, I got taught how to train properly, how to get my body in shape, kind of first and foremost, because you need to have that. Um, I got taught how to visualize, and I think that's super important, whether you're learning a new trick or skiing a line, um, going, over your, going, it, going over it in your head over and over and over again, I think is super helpful. Um, and then I think I learned kind of the hard way just with how to find balance with skiing so that skiing isn't everything and you're not pushing yourself too hard too often because I've seen it all too often with myself and others that if you're going too hard too long and you're too focused on one thing, it kind of, it can be a recipe for burnout. And so I think it's important to take some time for um, just skiing with your friends and having fun um, or just having other things in life that you also enjoy. So you're not putting so much pressure on yourself for that one particular thing. And, and I think if you don't put too much pressure on yourself, then you're just having more fun. And I think if you're having fun out there, well, then you'll want to ski for the rest of your life. And, um, and for myself, I've kind of had this progression of like mobile skiing to slow, pipe, big air, backcountry jumps, big mountain, um, mountaineering i've kind of had the opportunity to experience a lot of different types of skiing so it's like really kept me interested and very passionate about skiing and um and i think what was really interesting for me too was uh back in 2010 i tore my right acl and i was kind of lucky i tore it in the spring i was able to get surgery quite quickly and so I was able to start skiing uh, the next November or December. And I remember skiing down a blue square run, and I think we had just a few inches of new snow. And what I got to experience there was just the simplicity of skiing this smooth, silky surface that is powder with no risk. Um, and I was like, wow, this is a sensation that I want to experience for the rest of my life. And I don't need to be jumping off big cliffs or whatever else it might be to enjoy skiing. I can like come back to the simplicity of this. And I want to do this for the rest of my life or as long as I can walk, you know. So, so I always try to remind myself of that, of just enjoying the, the simple things in skiing. And these days I'm like really enjoying groomers. You know, it's, there's a lot to be said about um, like the essence of carving your ski on a groomer. And if it's a good groomer, it's super smooth and it's kind of the next best thing to pow. So, 
yeah, there's just the, all these different avenues that we can explore to keep ourselves interested and passionate and keep the fun alive. I think one of the cool things that we've talked a little bit about is your kind of buildup and progression from ski season to ski season. And you're just talking about groomers and you were saying to me that that's how you start your season. You know, uh, when we're dealing with, you know, barely any snow on the ground or man-made snow or whatever, you are out there on groomers. And, and then talk about your approach um, from those early days of the season to when you're hitting film lines near the end of the year. Yeah. So around Whistler, and I would just imagine it's very similar here. Um, Whistler, we have huge boulder fields that exist throughout most of the Alpine. And where there's not boulder fields, there's huge stumps. And so it takes a lot of snow to fill in all that terrain. And I've just seen it all too often where people are just coming out and they're just frothing, they're super stoked, and they want to start hitting things. And the next thing you know, they're clipping rocks and breaking legs or hitting stumps and breaking ankles. And so I really just try to reel it in and wait till there's enough snow on the ground to actually go out there and enjoy myself. And so before that time, I, I take a lot of time just to ski groomers and just get mileage on my legs. And for me, like so much of it is just um, is creating this mind-body connection. It takes me a while before I'm at that level of confidence where I can go ski a line and huck a trick off of a natural feature. And so I really give myself the time just to... Um, get to the point where my skis feel like an extension of myself and I'm just feeling ultra comfortable on my skis. And so, yeah, I'll start with groomers until we get enough snow and then I'll start kind of just slowly dabbling further and further um, um, beyond the lifts. And, and then with regards to filming, I usually try to start off with um, just skiing pow and skiing small pillows doing smaller airs and kind of working myself up to the point where because for us March and April is kind of the time to film that's when you get to ski bigger lines and that's when you really want to have your confidence and your spidey senses and all your wits about you out there and for myself it takes that kind of build up till I'm to get myself to the point where I'm feeling comfortable when I'm standing on top of a mountain and I'm I'm feeling it not to say that I'm not scared up there, but um, I can put the trust in myself that I'm going to be able to do what I'm setting out to do at that point. For some reason, that was one of the things that really stood out to me as we were talking earlier today. I think I had, and I, I won't generalize for everyone everywhere, but the way that you were sort of talking about building up that confidence each year. And I think I think part of me is like, you know, Mark's been doing this a long time. He's an incredibly versatile skier. He's participated in all these disciplines. Yes, I understand the physical buildup for every ski season, but thinking that, oh, it's not like you just turn on the pro switch when it comes to the mental game or the confidence part, but that that's building up for you just like the, the strong legs are you know, from the start of a season. That was something um, that seemed kind of newer to me or I just had been thinking about it a bit wrong. Yeah, I'd say to a certain extent, skiing is almost more mental than it is physical. And so it's really taking that time to get your head into the game um, so that, you know, if you're going to a competition or you're trying to learn a new trick, by the time you've entered that competition or you're trying that new trick, you've rehearsed it or you've practiced it enough times where you know you've got it. And um, for myself, I wouldn't describe myself as a naturally gifted athlete. I'm the guy that had to take a lot of hits to get there. And, um, but I think it's, you guys are so lucky now that you've got opportunities to learn new tricks, for example, at a place like Woodward. You know, like we definitely didn't have that. <laughs> like when we were learning tricks back in the day, we were jumping off cat tracks onto flat landings. And, um, but yeah, that all being said, I think just progression is the key for longevity. 
because, I mean, your knees are only going to last so long. So take good care of them. Take good care of your back. And, um, and if you're feeling an injury, you know, like get it looked at. Go to a physio. Go to somebody. Go to a doctor and get it looked at. Because I've seen it all too often as well where people, uh, they had a, a knee injury, but they weren't sure what it was. And they're like, yeah, every so often it like kind of gives out on me. I'm like, you might have a torn ACL. You should probably go get it looked at. And it's like kind of funny, but it's, it's not at all because let's say you did tear your ACL and you decide you can keep skiing. An ACL isn't the worst injury you can have in your knee. You know, without having the stability of your ACL, it can lead to much worse injuries in your knee. So just stay on top of your bodies and listen to your body and, um, and listen to your gut when you're skiing as well. That's another good one to bring up just with regards to like knowing when to do something and when not to send it. You know, I think we have a lot of pressures around us to feel like um, we want to keep up with what our buddies are doing or what people are doing online or whatever. But at the end of the day, you got to like listen to, to your gut and to your brain and ask yourself, is, is this something I really want to do right now? And if it is, well, then, you know, and you've assessed the situation and the environment and the landing and whatnot, well, then, yeah, that's the time. But if you're not quite feeling it or you're having some hesitancy, you don't have to do it that day. You do have tomorrow, you know? Yeah, and that's one of the things that we talked about, too, is trying to change this culture and maybe we'll generalize out to kind of mountain sports in general, where you have that injury or you had a bad landing or a bad crash, we got to get out of this thing we kind of do of not going to get checked out because that is not a smart move at all for the long haul. And I still think that for many of us, it's like if you get back up, you're like, well, I'm back in standing, so let's just dust it off and keep going. And, and, um, that's something that we've talked a lot about at Blister and we're, you very much, you just said it, but like, if we could change that culture, that would be a good development. Yeah. And if you ring your bell, you know, take a minute to assess that or have a ski patrol assess you or have a doctor assess you because concussions in your brain is something you don't want to, you don't want to mess with. So in all in, we see you with this dome. And what I'm going to call alternative housing, alternative housing solutions and energy for anybody who knows you or has kind of followed your career. These are things that you are really passionate about now. And I'm curious, when did those things get onto your radar as interests and concerns when you could have very easily just been doing your professional skier thing yeah um my dad he used to install heating systems for greenhouses Uh, greenhouses are basically single pane glass it's like the least efficient structure that you can try to heat so being that he was putting the heating systems into it he was always trying to make it as efficient as possible so i think i kind of grew up um with that not that i was really paying attention to it when i was a kid um, and then at one point I met a guy that was driving his vehicle on vegetable oil. And I was like, what? You can, you can do that. <laughs> and, uh, so then I think that was kind of, uh, like a bit of a catalyst for myself. As soon as I started learning about running your vehicle on vegetable oil and be able to create your own fuel at home. Because I was just going to restaurants, getting the old deep frying hole, bringing it back home, cleaning it, and then putting my truck. And I remember the first time, because you have to flick a switch on the dash that basically uh, engages the pump to say, all right, you're driving on veggie oil. And when I first flicked that switch, that just put the biggest smile on my face. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And then I think from there, well, then you start learning about um, other renewable energies. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa. Can I live off grid? Can I create more, my own power? 
Like, why not stop at just creating my own fuel? Why not, um, you know, learn how to create a water wheel so I can power my house that way or install solar or wind? And, um, and then it got into growing food. Like, I ripped out my front lawn and put a garden there, and I got some chickens, and I just kind of went, you know, all in with trying to figure out um, how realistic it is to, to live that way. And so the dome was kind of an extension of that um, because it allowed me to be able to buy this um, 450 square foot living space that was totally movable and transportable. And, uh, and so all of a sudden you're like living in this smaller space that's circular and, uh, and you'd realize how little you need to live in that space. You know, like leave all the clutter behind and just get back to kind of like simpler living. It's funny because those days when you were first, you know, talking about posting, you know, running your vehicle on vegetable oil, you were kind of the out there dude. <laughs> totally. And now we're all like trying to catch up and in a big way, right? Like as housing prices have skyrocketed, as energy is a bigger and bigger concern every year and, you know, pollution and the rest. It's so interesting when, you know, enough time goes by that the like the weirdo out there is like, nope, that was somebody who was thinking about these things and not just thinking about it, but putting it into practice earlier and, um, you know, kind of at the forefront of some of that. And, you know, we, we had a conversation recently with Zach Giffen, who, you know, is kind of at the forefront of the, the tiny house movement. And, um, and yet I was like, well, Mark's kind of been on that, you know, in his own path too. And, um, I don't know, just interesting to see that and, and maybe share a little bit more with what you've been working on, you know, not just your own individual stuff, but from a community point of view and the, some of the development you've been doing. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the dome kind of opened up a whole new realm for me and just kind of understanding living in a smaller space and, you know, to buy one of these domes, you can buy one for $10,000. And so with regards to like buying a livable structure for $10,000, I was like, wow, this is pretty achievable for a lot of people. Um, and then through that, you know, I kind of learned the hard way with some cold nights in there, <laughs> not producing enough solar power. So just starting to learn more about what it actually takes to heat that space, what it takes to power that space, how much power you can use. And it's so fun when you're living on solar because you're basically, you're watching your, the amount of solar uh, power that you're producing. Like every hour I'm checking in, I'm like, how are we doing now? How are we doing now? Oh, shh. There's a cloud coming. <laughs> and as soon as you see a cloud pass by your solar panels, it's like, Burr, and she drops down. And so then with that, you're like monitoring how much energy you're using. So for me, I'm like charging tools, um, running a fridge, lights, etc. So it really gets you in tune with um, how much, well, your, your whole living environment, because now all of a sudden you're paying attention to the wind and you're paying attention to the sun, you're paying attention to when it rains, because it all comes back to how you're living in that moment. And so that's been really fun for me. And so, um, yeah, I've got into a little bit of real estate development, and um, now I've realized how challenging it is to um, bring that level of sustainability into like a normal uh, living situation. And it's still something I'm trying to wrap my head around because you know, as to uh, what Zach Giffen was bringing up, there's a lot of limitations when it comes to zoning bylaws and then building codes. And um, I think it is evolving right now and there are changes happening that's going to make it easier for us to potentially live in a smaller space or live in a more efficient space. You know, for the longest while, you weren't allowed to um, use a compostable toilet, whereas now you can do that. And... So that can be like huge amount of savings with regards to the the home that you want to live in, and um, and now we've just got so, we have so many different materials that we can now build a home of. You know, we've got three D printed homes that are coming down the line. They're building them in Canada right now, um, 
you know, like a dome or a yurt. There's like there's really it's a minimal amount of material, and so in turn they're they're quite affordable. I just went and visited a home in Revelstoke last month, and they're using uh, a concrete made out of hemp for their wall system, and it's flame proof, it's mold proof, rodent resistant. Um, and it's got a really high insulation value. So this is another example of another alternative um, with how we can build moving forward into the future here. So, and and I, th- I do believe that our solar panels are getting better. And um, I don't know, I just, like every day I, I seem to read about more and more developments with regards to energy production. Hydrogen being like the latest one that I've been reading a lot on. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, things can't stay the same, right? They can't. And so cool to see what's coming and the developments. And one of the, you know, one of the big takeaways from what Zach Giffen was saying was this is where it gets really important to get involved in your particular local community because these rules and regulations and zoning uh, requirements can be affected and changed if enough people are going to talk about these things and, and move those needles. And it's kind of got to happen, it seems, in a lot of places. Yeah, because I'm sure as most people are aware, mountain towns are not uh, cheap to live in. And so I think for like a younger generation, it's like, you know, can you imagine Buying a house for a million and a half, two and a half million dollars. I mean, that's pretty daunting for, for most anyone, you know. But if we can start looking at smaller and more efficient uh, housing solutions, then all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe I can start with that and kind of work my way up as opposed to not ever being able to do it. So, and, and I think to your point, what Zach was saying is that every county is different. Every state is different. And so if you guys feel like you have a great idea, you know, get a crew together and go share your ideas. And, uh, and more often than not, they, they will listen. It might take a little while, but uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a worthy effort. I want to open this up to questions from you all. So I'm going to ask one more question now. We've got a number of college students here, and I wanted to see if you had any particular advice to people who are in a spot where they will soon be thinking about life after college. And, you know, there are a number of paths available out there. Um, And what advice would you have to somebody just trying to figure it out? And should I go left or right or stay in this state go to a different state, move to a different country, you know, how, what do you, how do you approach kind of, or how have you approached big life decisions like that? Yeah, I've definitely lived my life kind of following my heart and in turn following my, my passion. Um, hence skiing. I've been uh, really lucky to be able to pursue this passion for a very long time, but um, at a time, 2010, 2011, where I tore one ACL, then the next. And so all of a sudden, I was like, hmm, uh, maybe I won't be skiing too much longer. And so that really forced me to rethink what my next steps were going to be. And it took me a couple of years as to you know, figuring out what was going to be my next passion in life. Um, and during that same time, I was playing around with veggie oil and solar and um, different building methodologies. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll start getting into doing some development. And so that's kind of led me down that path. So I would just recommend or suggest that you find what you're very interested and passionate about. Because I think to do anything well, you want to have a lot of energy and you want to have a lot of stoke for what you're doing. Because I think when you have that, that is what um, leads to like innovation and new ideas. And I think when that's happening, you're in a creative space. And I think that's kind of what we need these days. We need new creative ideas to see this world continue to move forward in a better way. And um, 
And what's, what's great about when you're in that space, like all of a sudden, it's kind of a cheesy scene, but like the world is your oyster. Like, there's really so many different opportunities out there. And we were talking about it just a, a while back about how like our grandparents, they pretty much just had one job most of their life. These days, most of us are going to have three to five different jobs. So I think it's just important to um, remember that it's not kind of a be-all, end-all, that we really have to remain um, passionate and stoked and driven and creative and just, um, yeah, find what it is that keeps you up at night. You know, like, what are you thinking about as you're trying to go to sleep? What ideas do you have circulating in your head? And because I find quite often those are the things that you're really passionate about, you know, whether it is skiing or um, engineering, whatever it may be. And, uh, and I think those are the people that really create change in the world. Yeah. And if the next question, if anybody throw a hand up, we'll get you a mic. So, <laughs> so Mark, I noticed you like to spin a lot in your segments, but uh, I was wondering why you didn't go upside down. Great question. Um, yeah, I'd say I got more into like the flat spins than backflips. And um, I'd say I got into like the whack flips, but not quite the backflips. <laughs> you know? um, I never got into front flips, like my body. Um, for me, it was, I mean, it is a tough one to spot. Some people are really great at it. Um, but I, I guess at some point you have to realize what you're good at and not so good at, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like I would say I was okay at backflips, but I wasn't great at them. Um, so hence it was always kind of like a crooked backflip. Um, and like I did spend a lot of time training back mutes and whatnot on water ramps and trampoline and whatnot. Um, but I guess for me, it always just felt more natural to spin left or right. And, uh, that kind of, yeah, tickled my fancy and kept me going. But to your point, um, like I would say I've got a mental block towards a backflip, for example, and that is something I do need to work through for sure. And it's, it's definitely on the list. So thanks for reminding me of (laughs) what I need to work on. This is never too late, right? What is there a consensus though? I mean, we'll ask the room too. Threes versus backflips. I mean, a lot of people would say backflips are easier for them. No? Yeah, I've heard that for sure. I don't know. What do you guys think? Hands up for who thinks a 360 is easier than a backflip. Hands up for who thinks a backflip is easier than a 360. So we're kind of like almost 50-50. Yes. <laughs> so uh, next season, yeah, next ski film, when you're, when you're back in Crested Butte for MSP number 21, right. it's just going to be a full backflip segment. Uh, thanks to you. Do you have any advice for staying calm on big lines? Absolutely. Because I get scared every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, So yeah, two things, visualization and breath. So um, there's a breath that's called a box breath. And so what it is, you breathe in for four seconds, you hold for four seconds, you breathe out for four seconds, you hold for four seconds. They say if you do that six times that it will actually calm your nervous system. And that's quite often what's going on when you're nervous and you're standing on top. Your nerves are shaking and you're shaking in your boots because your nervous system is so fired up. So breath, and while I'm breathing, I'm visualizing what I'm going to be doing. And usually by the time I've done my six rounds, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say cool as a cucumber, but I'm way better off than I was before. And then at that point when I'm, doing my three, two, one count in, then I'm able to let go. And basically, you know, it's kind of an overused term, but like enter that flow state where you're not really having to 
overthink it anymore. You're really able to let your, your mind and body do what they know how to do. But I've also, in a couple situations, I've done the opposite, where I like almost like start pounding on my chest, <laughs> stomping my skis around. And for, for a male, or, you know, I'm like building up my testosterone. Because I think for some situations, that can actually help, um, like almost build up uh, more strength, is my theory anyhow. <laughs> and so today, yeah. these days, you might go the first way you just explained, and then the next day you're trying to psych yourself up. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, this is actually great for me to, um, to go over for myself. But uh, I find for skiing lines, I do that breath work more often. Um, if I'm going to be doing a, a trick off a jump or a cliff, then I might rely on stomp my skis around and get myself psyched up that way. So, um, but then I use key words as well for myself. Um, like I'll use uh, like flow or being calm or being strong. Um, whatever I think I need in that moment, I'll just review those words. And I'll just repeat it to myself and basically instill that thought that I think I need in that moment to do what I need to do. So really at the end of the day, whatever it takes for you to get into um, what I would call like a healthy headspace, then uh, yeah, try it out. Do you think you've gotten better at that over your career or is it not so much better or it's just changed? Like what works for you? Yeah, I think as we get older, we just learn more and more about what makes us work and what makes us tick. Um, yeah, like I've seen so many of my friends that were amazing skiers, but when it came to competition, they would blow it. And I think when I was... You know, in my younger years, we didn't really know what it was. We just assumed that he sucked at competing. <clears throat> when I think that, you know, if he would have taken the time to, um, you know, go through more of a process of breathing or visualizing or whatever his thing was, that he could have had more success and not psych himself out. I mentioned uh, that you, when you were younger, you were taught how to train the right way. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when I was 19, I joined the provincial, the British Columbia freestyle ski team. And I did that for three years. And I was really lucky that I had a coach that taught us how to train in the gym and gave me the fundamentals with how to squat properly, how to do a deadlift properly. Um, you know, how to, like you want to get strong, but you don't want to get like, um, like, too bulky and strong, they become slow. So then incorporating plyometrics with that. And it's been kind of cool because that was quite a long time ago for me. And actually going back and I started training um, early August. And I kind of went back to more or less the way I was training when I was 19. And um, kind of going back to just like getting the basic muscle groups you know, getting them built up. And then while I'm on the road, I don't, I'm not going to have access to the gym as much. So now I'm focusing on cardio. Or if I'm going to be stuck in a hotel room for a while, then I'll start focusing on single leg squats. Because I think that's the other really important thing to remember with your knees is you've got all these little stabilizers that are there to help give your knees stability when, when you really need it. And... Um, and that's where like a balance board can be really good or a BOSU ball. And, um, and then, you know, on the flip side of the, the strength training side of things, then I, I try to do yoga or stretch as much as possible because that's the other thing is like, yeah, you can be strong, but if your muscles are getting too tight or your ligaments are getting too tight, then they're kind of like, you know, old rubber bands that are just ready to go. So you really need to, yeah, balance everything out and stay flexible especially if you want to grab you know <laughs> yeah so because i've had a friend that um was actually too flexible to the point where he was 
you know, having a lot of injuries because of that. And then I've known of people that are too strong. So it is just, it is a kind of a fine line and a balance of trying to figure out, um, first off, like what your body type is and what you want your style to look like. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, you want to try to ski as long as possible for, you know, like I was saying, as long as you can walk or, you know, as long as you want to live. I want to, I'm hoping to live into my late 90s or early 100s and I hope to be skiing all the way through to that time. Um, Mark, you talked a lot about like inland giants, how you were traveling between a lot of different mountain ranges. Yeah. How did your approach to like lines, but also snow safety change based on the mountain ranges? What's your thought process? Is? Yeah, I definitely rely on local knowledge as much as possible. When we were in California, we had great communication with uh, the ski patrols from Sugar Bowl. And, um, and these days we're so lucky. We've got um, amazing avalanche forecasts in most regions where there's a lot of skiing. And I would say quite often it's pretty reliable. You can get like a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, when we were in California, I was there before the storm started. So um, during that three weeks, we were really able to keep an eye on things. And then if you're in doubt of the snowpack, or when we were in doubt, we just stuck to like micro terrain. So even if it were to have popped or if we had a small avalanche, you could, you know, it wasn't going to be um, like catastrophic. And um, it's something I learned with doing an avalanche two course. And it's really learning how to navigate mountains. Despite the conditions, there's always a safe way to get around. So, um, and I really try to just incorporate that practice as much as possible. So we're pretty lucky, like when we're filming, we're always looking for features. So like a pillow line, it's very broken terrain. So it can't propagate into a big avalanche because there, there just isn't that, that mass of the slope around you. And, um, and then some days you just shut her down. Like if, it re- if it's really that bad, which I mean, it, there are those days, then you just stay at home or go to the ski resort and keep it chill, you know? Um, in Norway, it was, once again, local knowledge. Hanging out with Nikolai Schirmer and those guys, they were all, um, that's where they've grown up and, and they've got good communication with other ski guides in that area that are spending a lot of time in the mountains. So it's like a lot of it is just, um, yeah, having your feet and your skis on the ground and just communicating with as many people as possible and just sharing knowledge. Um, around Whistler, we've got um, a lot of different avalanche forecasts because there's heli skiing there, there's ski touring operations, there's cat skiing, there's the resorts, and especially with all the heli skiing operations around there, um, they're covering a lot of ground and they're seeing um, all aspects, all elevations. And so all that information goes back to the avalanche forecast every single day, every single night. So when we wake up in the morning, um, we've got an app through um, BC Avalanche. And so that's just part of my morning routine is checking that. And, um, and actually, you know, social media is another great one as well. You know, if anybody sees anything um, prevalent, then they're, they're posting that and sharing that. And it kind of spreads like wildfire. So, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, it sounds like you came up through bump skis. Yeah, yeah. So... I wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> um, that's such a controlled environment. I mean, those yeah. bumps are designed and they're there. You know the line exactly. Yeah. Your body already knows it. Uh, how do you, I guess, free ride is such a good name for what you do. You yeah. go to the top. You don't know what's coming. You, you talked about scoping terrain. Yeah. Can you tell a few stories of where it worked perfect? Or how do you adjust? I, I, I'm not a free ride skier. I yeah. come more from the groomers. I love that feeling you're yeah. talking about there. Yeah. And, and finding what the ski can do and what it is. But how does a run develop for you? For me, the, if, if I got on something that steep at the top, mm-hmm. that first, you have no time to get into a rhythm or a thing. Just yeah. How does a run develop for you? As you and, yeah. And yeah. the camaraderie of the other people that do yeah. what you do. Yeah. And you kind of push each other. How do you deal with that pressure? And I'm adding a lot of things, but just how you would cover it. And I've always wondered about the pressure of a film shoot 
you should be able to control what you want to do. Yep. But all of this effort has gone into getting you to that spot. <laughs> totally. And how do you, what's going through your mind up there? Yeah, so with regards to pressure, I always try to remind myself of what I would be skiing if there weren't any cameras around. Um, because it's easy to have those cameras um, potentially push you into something that you might not be feeling comfortable with doing. And so I think I just try to bring myself back to that. And my whole thing is like trying to keep myself at a terrain where if I fall, I die. You know, if I fall, yeah, I might get hurt, but I'm not putting myself into those kind of situations where, um, yeah, that could happen. So... Um, and then with selecting a line, I always try to find a line that looks fun. You know, when I look at a spine line, it kind of, it almost is telling me where the turns are going to sit or where I might do a trick. And so for those kind of lines, they just flow very naturally. Um, every so often I'll put myself into a, a technical situation <clears throat> and that can be very, <clears throat> excuse me very condition dependent. Sometimes I get into it, I make one turn, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I'm stopping right here and I might have to sidestep or boot pack or just slowly make my way down. Because, I mean, that can be a really tricky thing is once again, trying to assess the snow conditions from afar. You know, you, you might not always know that what looks like pow might actually be a gnarly death crust and you just can't really turn in it. So quite often you're compensating as you're going as well. And, um, but that's where like when we're filming, we usually try to start with smaller lines in the morning and kind of work our way up. So by the time you're in those bigger situations, you know, you have a better idea of what the conditions might be like. And then with regards to other skis around, there's definitely no pressure or I wouldn't say that we push each other. We're definitely more there to support each other and bounce ideas off each other. We all kind of know each other's abilities. And I um, won't usually tell somebody not to do anything because <laughs> there's some people that can just do things that are way beyond what I would have ever thought possible. Um, but you might just say, hey, you know, if the conditions are like this, then maybe you can go there. And that's the other key component to skiing big mountains is having a plan B or a plan C. So let's say an avalanche does pop out on this part of the run. Well, you can get yourself to that safe spot. Or, I mean, avalanches are usually the biggest things that we're always trying to be hyper aware of. Because, um, yeah, those are the ones that are largely unpredictable. Like even if this avalanche forecast is saying it's totally good to go and your guide is saying it looks great, it's uh, what lies under the snowpack on that particular aspect of that particular elevation could be different from what we are experiencing the rest of the day. So it's, um, yeah, just always um, being ready for, for that. And then, like I said, like listening to your gut, I've definitely had some situations where um, I got to the top of the line. I'm like, I am not, this does not feel good at all. Can you come pick me up, please? <laughs> and we'll just, we'll go somewhere else. It's really cool to have you here and to share this perspective of yours and to get to hear from somebody who's been doing it at a high level for quite a while now. And, uh, so thanks for being here and, and, uh, can't wait to see you back here, you know, for, your 21st film. <laughs> thanks so much for having me and uh, thanks for coming out, guys. It was nice to meet you all. And uh, I hope you have an amazing winter. And you guys coming out to the movie tomorrow night? Some of you? Yeah, nice. Well, uh, yeah, I guess you'll be as surprised as I will be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it should be a blast. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Mark for the great conversation. Thanks to the audience at Western for their excellent questions for Mark. Oh, and I should say soon, as in like 
tomorrow. That would be Tuesday, October 10th. You will also be able to check out the video of our Blister Speaker Series, along with a bunch of new videos that we've been putting out on our Blister YouTube channel. So yeah, if you wanna watch along while you listen, that'll be up at least by Tuesday, October 10th. Now finally, I wanna say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this podcast, and thanks as always to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. We will talk to you again real soon.